With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to our feed. Please go to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You'll get your true crime on Tuesdays as well as helping to keep this program going. If you've already subscribed, thank you very much. Uh, it makes a big difference. And we want to thank everyone who listened to our previous episode, The Hatchet Wielding Hitchhiker. We've received a few messages from Philip Fairbanks, a journalist and podcaster who has been researching and writing about Kai's case for a few years now. Although he says he was interviewed by the documentary filmmakers, he tells us that they ended up chopping his parts and they ended up on the cutting room floor. They also asked him for original interviews that he had with Kai, footage of it, and they also left that on the cutting room floor. Um, he tells us that he feels that the documentary was very biased and that the state messed up Kai's case. Um, and this is for the killing of Joseph Galfi. The film, uh, he, he says the film ignores uh, Kai's defense, which was defense during a sexual assault. 
Uh, we and our guest Chappelle noted that the crime and the case were dealt with very swiftly and without much detail. So we thank Philip for providing more context and we'll link some more resources in the show notes. So um, definitely it's one of those things where it's like maybe look into it a little bit more. Like we said, the documentary left out a lot to be desired when it came to the crime. So I wasn't really surprised when um, somebody reached out to us with a little bit more background information. So we just wanted to update everybody on that. Yes. I mean, we said at the time, all three of us said, why is the crime given such short shrift? It's Mm -hmm. rushed through, it's glanced Mm -hmm. at sideways. And uh, Philip's links uh, certainly make for very interesting reading. So we will Mm -hmm. link all of those. We also have a couple of true crime updates today because crime never sleeps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but before we get to the news, let's bring in our guest. Making his crime scene debut, a man who has parlayed decades of movie and television nerdom into a career, <laughs> the magnetic, energetic, unapologetic Mike Flum. <laughs> Mike, and, welcome to the scene. <laughs> and no sense of etiquette. That's the most etiquette that you stop with. Sorry, I just have to go back several minutes. Mari, I don't know if you meant to say that he talked about being chopped up in a show documentary about the hatchet person. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Beautiful punnery on your Yeah, hatchet. I did that on Not purpose. Yes. <laughs> all puns welcome. Yes. And Mike, we ask all our new guests. And so, of course, we're going to ask you. What is your true crime origin story? How did you get into it? What do you get out of it? What do you like? What do um, you like, Mike? Yeah, when it comes to crime, largely a perpetrator, sometimes a voyeur. Uh, this is when I go through just my rap sheet and I get arrested <laughs> at, in this podcast. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, I am someone who is incredibly anxious. And so suffice mm-hmm. it to say, watching people get murdered and hearing about their solved and unsolved mysteries does not bring me a peace of mind to (laughs) sleep at night. Though it is interesting, actually. I know that obviously everyone is different with their own mental stability and finding Mm -hmm. their sort of safe haven. Some people love going to horror movies, for instance, feeling like Mm -hmm. there is a situation that is out of control and certainly heightening, you know, the, the, the goose pimples on the back of my neck. But at the same time, it's like within a controlled scenario that I know uh-huh. will have an ending at the end of the day. So it's almost like having that contained resolution could sometimes help with them. For me, cannot stand this stuff. I <laughs> hate being terrified. I hate feeling dread. I will definitively be that person to look up the summaries on Wikipedia because oh, I'm intrigued no. to oh, see. No. But it means I'm not experiencing <laughs> jump scares. I'm terrible with jump scares. This has nothing to do with true crime. But suffice it to say, uh, that feeling of dread does come about i of course like everyone i'm sure uh, i am i don't know probably the hundredth guest if you if you know out of however many guests you've had i'm still the hundredth to say that cereal <laughs> was certainly one of the big bastions i think for me of in course. getting into it uh just the narrative style the fact that it m- felt more like a mystery i would say than mm. any sort of i don't know gritty true crime stuff than that we're used to from like a dateline you yeah. know, or uh, one of these CNN or or one of these uh, other Lifetime History Channel, even sometimes uh, yeah. shows after dark to talk about these grisly crimes that occur in the streets. It felt more like a Law and Order episode, to be completely honest, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of obfuscates uh, the darker, more realistic elements of the fact that people mm-hmm. are dying. But at the same time, perhaps makes it palatable to the uh, more discerning taste of yours truly. So. 
I definitely mm-hmm. dabbled in that as well as the couple of ones that I think hit afterwards. I did listen to Serial Season 2, which was interesting because, again, mm-hmm. it was dealing with a very different case with Bo Bergdahl. Obviously, uh, murder not being the highest, you know, the, the crime in question there, which definitely opened my mind up to the idea that true crime does not always mean that someone is dead at yep. the end of it. <laughs> only murder is, it, it's, it's squares and rectangles, right? Mm-hmm. All murder is crime, but not all crime is murder. Uh, and <laughs> so, yeah. And so I, you know, I, I realized when I was asked this question, like thinking back, I certainly did trail off. I think I did watch stuff like making a murderer, which I found relatively interesting, but yeah. there was still a part of me at the same time that was like, feeling remorse and feeling weird about all this, uh-huh. which was the intention, but not, again, a, a mood that I necessarily wanted to be put into. But the stuff that I like in terms of true crime that I didn't even realize was true crime are things dealing with more so like corporate crime or like things uh-huh. around wackadoo pop culture events, for instance. The one big thing I can think of that I really enjoyed was McMillions. Which was, oh, yeah. Yeah, which yes. was an HBO documentary that came out, I think, a couple of years ago at this point. Actually, yeah. I believe, right when the pandemic started. Pandemic uh, happened, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's a five part documentary series that came out on HBO about uh, the McDonald's Monopoly scandal. Where, <laughs> yeah. of course, back in the day, uh, you got to pick pieces off your large fries and your, you know, your Big Macs and be able to play Monopoly to earn big prizes. And then there was this big scandal where there were a bunch of people that were essentially like laundering these tokens to bring in all these big prizes. And they were trying to figure out, okay, who's the inside person that's been essentially running this whole sting line operation to try to get and abscond with these, these pieces of corporate property to be able to to earn earn people boffo bucks. And what I really enjoyed about that is, you know, in the capitalist society we engage in, like, the bad guys are good and vice versa. Sometimes where it's like, (laughs) Oh man, I can't believe this guy did that. Wait, am I rooting for McDonald's mm-hmm. here? Yeah. For yes. Should I be rooting yes. for the Golden Arches right now? They're far from the Golden Boys in this scenario. So mm-hmm. I think that's where I sort of found myself straying to. I will say I am not engaged actively in a lot. I think the most recent one I watched is, uh, I don't even know if this is like a crime. And we'll talk today about whether or not uh, yes, our thoughts of today constitutes true quote-unquote crime, because you could say no crimes were technically committed. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Pepsi Where's My Jet is the, uh, the yes. most recent one that I remember getting into, just because, again, it seemed at the outset something very fun, talking about like promotional events gone wrong, dealing with sort of a brand spinning wildly out of control and having to sort of clean up its own mess. That's kind of what I realize is my wheelhouse in the realm of true crime. So less towards the actual people losing their lives and more so about these odd historical events that just have companies showing their complete asses. That's my <laughs> bread and butter. Well, we found the perfect thing for you today. We sure did. <laughs> um, let, let's get to our, our true crime news. First up, you, the listeners, you, Mike Bloom, may have heard that Carol Baskin's husband, Don Lewis, is alive and well and living in Costa Rica. I will note we're recording this on Friday the 20th of January. <laughs> uh, not only that, but that this has been known for a year and nobody knew about it. Now, there seemed to be only a single source, so of course I went to Snopes to <coughs> do my own research, uh-huh. Google Snopes in other words. You may remember from Tiger King that Don Lewis disappeared in 1997 and Past and future guest of the show, Rebecca Lavoie from Crime Lighters On, notes that 
Although everyone saw all of the men featured in Tiger King commit actual crimes, including Uh the Tiger King himself, Joe Exotic, Maldonado, currently in prison for a murder for hire plot against Carol Baskin. Despite that, everybody decided that Carol was a killer who fed her husband to the tigers. Come on, Jeanette. I mean, truly, do better. It was the beginning of the pandemic, but it was a very strange misogyny that just Mm -hmm. was fed and fed and fed by internet sleuths, so-called. Look, here's the tea. According to Snopes, Cosmopolitan published a story on January the 18th of this year, two days ago, quoting Carol's statement in November of 2021 that there was a letter from Homeland Security saying they reached out to a detective in Costa Rica who said Don Lewis was alive and well. And TMZ published a blurry screenshot of the letter. That is the extent of the sources that we know so far. Snopes has reached out to the uh, Department of Homeland Security asking them to verify the letter or confirm the information, but they are yet to receive a response. So everybody needs to just calm down it. Mike, that's there was, it. There was a letter that said, like, gone to Costa Rica. See you later. They're like, this is it. <laughs> this is the smoking gun. We got him. We he got him, boys. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I can believe it, but I'm also just like, I need more than one source. I, I definitely need more than one source, especially one that's not Carol. Um, but I agree. We we saw a lot of crimes in that documentary. And I, I've i never looked at Carol Baskins and been like, ooh, this lady's a mur- murderer. She needs to get locked up. It was more to me like a funny pop culture moment. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's so much funnier to say that she fed her husband to a tiger and that she's out here wearing flower crowns and riding her bicycle. Like it's just so much more funnier and, and, and wearing leopard print on dancing with the stars. Um, so it, it's very interesting, especially since all of those men in that documentary, every single last one of them are horrendous people and more of them need to be locked up. But mm. I, I'm very interested. We'll keep an eye on this to see if uh, any more news pops up from that. Mike, hey, will you follow it? Did you watch the Tiger King? Did you get caught up in that? I did not. Uh, I got it what? largely. As a millennial <laughs> I am, I got it through memes. Again, I think it was in my like post Mickey murder thing where I was like, I feel bad for these people. And it's mm. odd coming from such a, a big voice and reality TV fan to yeah. be like, I feel bad for these people, so I won't watch them suffer. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't know, maybe that was the line for me. It's like, well, they're not playing for a million dollars, so therefore mm. I, I feel worse watching them live through it. But I saw the memes, and that's what I totally agree with with Mari, that, you know, maybe there is stuff baked in there. I thought it was more so that she drew a lot of attention to herself with the, hey, you cool cats and kittens stuff. And so as a result, people were like, yeah, let's make memes out of her. People did legitimately think that she fed her husband to the tigers. Oh yeah. I mean, I would I would believe it. I mean, the internet believes a grand source of things that even the best writers could not uh come up with in terms of fiction. But yeah. I, I I I was not up and up with the Tiger King. I knew that Tiger King 2 was one of those uh failed sequels, it, oh, yeah. maybe perhaps because its titular character was behind bars and so a bit <laughs> constrained in terms of locations of where to go, but I mean, Not only I, that, I mean, it was very ugly. Like the uh, Tiger King, jolly, 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 so it was presented, was quite ugly itself. And then Tiger King 2 was just unrelenting ugliness and mm-hmm. very difficult to watch. But I did it so that you didn't have to. 
Mm-hmm. You stop to, yeah, Mari, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, as a journalist, how many sources do you go to when you're breaking a story? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big win. Thank you for assuming. <laughs> I never have the credentials to break a story. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I, I'm an entertainment journalist, so largely I don't necessarily, uh, I'm, I'm not one of the people to go by the hearsay. So I don't have necessarily a magic number. Usually I, I press releases are, are my usual go-to, right? Like straight from the horse's mouth. Usually I get to do interviews. So I'm I able was going to get say, a direct quote yeah, direct from that quotes. person. Uh, so fortunately, I, I do not need to be the Woodward and Bernstein all in one mm-hmm. Jewier package and uh, <laughs> try to come up with my own hit scoop. I would imagine, though, it certainly has to be more than... 480p letter uh, that you just up. <laughs> I mean, I guess if they have to make a, uh, do you think maybe they're trying to craft a season three storyline by purposely like writing and planting a letter? That seems like something out of reality TV. I feel like Johnny Bananas did that once. I feel like this this has been wrung dry. I don't think I don't I don't think it needs to be done, and I don't think they do it on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I, I he's probably dead. She didn't kill him. That's it. Everybody. Yeah, there down. you go. <laughs> so we'll link to that Snopes article in the in the show notes. And Murray, you also have some true crime news for us of slightly more serious nature. Yes, as we record this on Friday the 20th, news of the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust um, has resulted in charges. So Alec Baldwin, famous actor, uh, and armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed are to be charged with involuntary manslaughter and negligent use of a deadly weapon. Um, So involuntary manslaughter is more than like just mere negligence. The charge is that the person acted without due caution and that there was complacency, lack of care and recklessness. Baldwin is being charged as both the actor who allegedly pulled the trigger, even though he says he didn't, and the producer with oversight of the film set. Yeah, this is really interesting. There's been very lively discourse online, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gun people are saying that it is the person holding the weapon that has to check that it's safe, no matter who handed it to them or or what they were told. Mm -hmm. And film professionals are saying that it's the armourer that deems the weapon safe and that if an actor checks the weapon in any way, it has to go back to the armourer. And mm. I can tell you both are right <laughs> because yeah. the, the way that an actor on a set can check a gun is to ask the armorer to check the gun in front of them. So mm. the argument is very black and white and I'm here to be the shade of grey to say, <laughs> yes, the actor holding the gun is responsible to, to the extent that they, can, they are within their rights to say to the armorer, please check the gun while I watch you. And I'll tell you a little story from my past. Back in the Ooh, 80s, I played yes. a police officer on a short-lived uh, 1980s sitcom. You'll never find it. Um, <laughs> and I had a, a decommissioned gun on my belt, so completely unable to be fired. It was very heavy. But I was never allowed to touch it. It was a sitcom, so I never drew it out of my house. I was going to say, I, I think sitcoms in the 80s wouldn't have gone in that yeah, direction. That's yeah. right. But as soon as they yelled cut, the armor would be right by me and would take the gun out of my belt, even if it, we were just setting back and about to start again. And then the last thing before action, he would holster it back into my belt. So I know from being on set myself, even with a gun that wasn't, it was, there was no possibility that it be fired. They have that care. 
I did want to point out the people bring up the death of Brandon Lee. And for people who don't know, mm-hmm. he died in 1993 on the set of The Crow. His death was ruled negligence. And once it's ruled negligence, that opens the door for a civil suit, which his mother, uh, Linda Lee Caldwell, did take. She sued the filmmakers and the terms are undisclosed. So people are saying, what's the difference? Eh. Go and look on Wikipedia. There's a very different, it's a very different set of circumstances. It was negligence, it was avoidable, but it's not the situation that we have uh, here. From a legality perspective, I do not know, uh, considering that Sarah just disclosed that she was playing 80s police officers <laughs> on TV, whether we could speak towards the legal aspect of it. But I mean, I'm, I'm just really intrigued, especially to your point, that charge of involuntary manslaughter that's that's gonna bear a lot of weight in a court of law no yeah yeah it it really is and there's a clip of the santa fe district attorney uh who's being interviewed on cnn which gives a good insight into the process that leads the da's office to decide uh to file these charges which will happen before the end of the month so we'll link that in the show notes as well yeah there's a lot of detail there that she's very good at explaining why it's involuntary manslaughter she makes the distinction between an accident, negligence, and involuntary manslaughter. Alec Baldwin's uh, attorney, just the last little bit here, Luke Nikas released a statement which says in part, uh, Mr Baldwin had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the movie set. He relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him that the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges and we will win. That's kind of my question, too, though. Like, why was there ever a live round in those guns? Yeah, I mean, this is what um, Mary Carmack out twice, the Santa Fe district attorney. She was asked, why was there like, have you traced how live rounds came onto the set? And she says, no, but it doesn't matter. We're moving forward. And Mike, have you That's been following crazy. this? It's sort of show busy. Adjacent. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this was a, a huge thing last year. Certainly, I think was one of the inimitable things, uh, you know, that that brought up the the gun debate, as well as, of course, this idea of uh, overworking crews as well. I ended up leading to some discourse about that as well, about like the importance that people play behind the camera and uh, certainly some work conditions as well that may have led to like, not to to put this as any sort of excuse for may have happened, but like exhaustion perhaps might have been an example. Movies that notoriously have long and hard hours. So yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy. It is wild that it is, you know, in the hands of someone like Alec Baldwin, who he and of himself, I know this is not mess magnets, but he has also <laughs> had quite the polarizing career in terms uh-huh. of stuff that has happened off the camera and his own issues as well for this to for him of all people to be the one to do this is is something that i've been still trying to wrap my head around i mean now that things have been like formally charged again i'm super intrigued to see where this goes because you spoke about the brandon lee case right and that was largely something that was kind of dismissed you know settled out of court etc i i don't know how that happens from here in in many many ways i'm not sure how much movie sets in all honesty have changed since it it does still ring that bell to your point of like i don't know what the movie rust was about why did there need to be bullets on set i think it was a western or something 
but it, we have such fantastic technology nowadays that yeah. you very easily create CGI bullets just like by mm-hmm. farting. You don't even need any effort <laughs> to create CGI bullets nowadays. Why feel the need to go for that verisimilitude considering that the dangers are involved? I don't know how many sets have reflected said changes after it. Honestly, they should because this is a, a huge reminder of how fallible we are in many ways as humans. And how when you put dangerous weapons in our hands, mistakes can happen. And so maybe keeping the chances of those mistakes as mitigated as possible is perhaps a good idea for everyone's livelihood. Yeah, definitely. No argument from me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah, what did we watch this week? We hand-selected for Mike Bloom a property called The Pez Outlaw. We watch it on Netflix. Uh, It was produced and directed by Amy Bandley and Storkel. This is her directorial debut. She previously produced Alabama Snake and The Legend of Cocaine Island. And the other (laughs) (laughs) is that is that a nonfiction? Is that a documentary? That is a documentary. Okay, Uh, I heard it was a wild one. Mm -hmm. We had the we covered a property by the director Tobias Love uh, a few episodes ago called Eat the Rich. Mm. And the other producer director is Brian Storkel, who I believe is her husband. He was also a producer on Cocaine Island, and he has directed more sports uh, documentaries mm-hmm. uh, in the past. Um, and incidentally, Mike, Cocaine Island is being made into a feature film with Will Ferrell. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Now I'm so intrigued. Is this like Fantasy Island, but all the fantasies are cocaine-based? Is the island just made of cocaine? Is it a giant block of cocaine floating in the ocean? I have so many questions about the term. I mean, we do have... Do you think they're trying to put it in like the cocaine bear universe that we're oh, going to have God. like a cocaine? It might be the extended cocaine, cocaine bear. MCU, but the C is for cocaine. <laughs> it's, it's like back to the 80s when um, some, of, <laughs> some people may or may not have snorted or sniffed or been around. Maybe. It seems very 80s to me. It seems like a, like a bit of a throwback. Yes. So the crime itself, I'll just run it down quickly and then we can get into our lovely discussion. So this is the story of Steve Glue, brilliantly named. I love it. Uh, I'm surprised, Mike, that you didn't come with a fake beard today, but 
<laughs> slightly disappointed as well. He's a Western <laughs> machinist. Don't, don't, don't take away the illusion, Sarah. Let's just, I know we're all going to go along with the, the idea that I did. The fact that you were, right yes. <laughs> and a flat cap. Well, interestingly, he plays himself in the reenactments. We're not fond of reenactments here. Really? But when you have the person playing themselves in the reenactments, it just was like brilliant. So just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, he starts smuggling Pez dispensers from Europe, which are either rare or unavailable in the US or both. And he sells them to collectors for hundreds or thousands of dollars. He's operating in a grey market. He's buying pairs through essentially the back doors of factories. And he's able to get them through US Customs because Pairs USA had not registered their trademark with Customs. So this infuriates Scott McWinney, the brilliantly named president, who is the head of Pairs USA. Mm. Steve made $4.5 million in 11 years. And then. According to Steve, the president pressured the European factory contacts that he had to stop selling to Steve. And with his European pipeline closed, Steve designs and manufactures his own unique Pez dispensers. They cost him $5 each to make. He sells them for $25 and they're snapped up in the collector's market until Pez USA copies the designs and sells them as the misfits for $1.99 each effectively ruining Steve. He drops out of sight until 2019 when he's the featured speaker at a Pears convention and finds he is a legend in the Pears collector's world. Mike, your overall thoughts on this documentary? I guess let me answer your question with a question. Why me? What what made you look at this title at this man in a bucket hat and a ZZ top beard? and think that this is my oeuvre, this is my wheelhouse. It was the no blood, no murder, no torture of it. Mm. Oh, okay. I appreciate it because I really enjoyed this. Uh, this uh, was, I mean, listen, we were just talking about some very serious updates in your true crime sections. This is the opposite. This is a freaking lark. This is a yeah. romp from a candy store. I Literally. really, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this. I mean, that, I think that's, yeah, it was really represented in that through the tone specifically. Like, they, Steve Glue loves himself a Tom Clancy mystery, right? Yeah. He, he, he would showcase that. And what I love about the reenactments is, yeah, they can be cheesy AF. Again, going back to those shows that I mentioned before, but at the same time, this one really steered into it, right? Making it seem like it was a Jason Bourne-esque thriller with him escaping the shadow in Croatia uh, or mm -hmm. him, you know, being the, the big star tossing the keys to the valet as he walks into one of these press conventions. <laughs> yeah, like, funny, yes. So much tongue-in-cheek happening mm -hmm. over the course of this that I really enjoyed it. And also, again, you know, one of the things that I feel weird about with these documentaries is obviously humanizing the people behind them and trying to feel mm -hmm. like okay this is interesting to understand the you know components behind them but at the same time they may have done something bad steve glue is a character we're gonna get mm -hmm. to him i think they picked the perfect subject and i'm assuming he played a lot up to the camera but at the same time i think they did such a great job of just rationalizing who this guy is uh someone who clearly has his eye always on something at a different time. Someone who uh, self-diagnoses himself with things like OCD uh, as bipolar, etc. Mm -hmm. And so has been reconciling with a lot of that and trying to keep his hands busy as a result and fell ass backwards into becoming like an incredible 
Pez smuggler and reseller. I thought it was just such a fun journey and to see exactly why he did it as well. To hear from the man himself throughout was obviously uh, you weren't expecting 100% objective truth, but I almost didn't want that because it almost then made the fish story that he was saying, the tall tale, that much more fun. Yeah, I definitely like this. I thought this was, um, it was a movie within a documentary. Like that's exactly what it felt like. The reenactment, I mean, it's it's what eighty five percent reenactment. I would say is like if it it's chalked to the gills with reenactment. But the reenactment itself was done in such a good way. Like Mike pointed out, the the how it was filmed, the, the quality of it. It really felt like we were watching a movie within the documentary. And it, it reminded me of, like I said, uh, one of my recommendations a few weeks back, the Anthrax recommendation I did on Netflix. It was they did it that same way, where it was like it was a documentary. But anytime it came to the prime suspect that they had, they had Clark Gregg, the guy who played. Col- oh, yeah, Colson. Yeah. yeah, they had him play it. And it, it was like and not only that, but they would get like they would do the widescreen like they would they would go from full screen to then they do like the movie cinematic widescreen to let you know like this is the movie part and i think the pez outlaw did a brilliant job of going back and forth between just we we just have lots of talking heads in different locations telling their side of the story but as they're telling the story we're getting these really cool reenactments not only the reenactments i love when directors do the thing of they ask one person something and they give their side of the story and immediately give the other person's side mm-hmm. of the story, like oh, right? yeah. like tennis, like ping ponging back and forth the, their points of view. So you know how it, it differs or whatever. I love when they do that. I love when they use other interviews to kind of like, you know, disc, like, t- like talk bad, bad about other interviews. It was um, it was actually very entertaining. And Sarah can tell you, I fought tooth and nail. I was like, that <laughs> All right, we can watch really the Pez Outlaw. I was like, okay, fine. Because unlike Mike, I am a, a death and, and murder and trying to figure out what really happened type type person. So this was actually really fun. And and we did we almost did do Pepsi, where's my jet? And I wasn't really feeling that. So that's mm-hmm. when I thought that's why I thought I wasn't gonna really like this one, but I actually really did. I really did enjoy this. Thank you. Sarah. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I mean, you've talked me into things taste. too. <laughs> well, yeah. So where's the crime? That's my question to us today. Where is the crime? It's, well, it's sort of like the Airbud rule, right? Of like, <laughs> well, technically there's no rule that says you can't <laughs> smuggle these Pez back. Because like you said, the gray market is the term that they use here. That And it's purely coincidental, right? This guy, purely off of a whim, is like, yeah, I think I'm going to go visit the factory. And he gets given just like a few models of these dispensers, essentially, from this guy. That's the other thing as well, is I I love the surprising web that develops of this guy building this quote-unquote criminal enterprise around, you know, I think creatively stymied workers and also like maybe morally bending (laughs) white-collar people as well. In the case of uh, Gunther, right? Mm -hmm. The, uh, the, The happy factory owner in Poland. But essentially, he just gets like given a few of these dispensers as souvenirs. And coming back, he does get flagged for it by customs. To your point, Mari, love the comedy of the back and forth, right? With Mm -hmm. Steve trying to come across with his 40 chest saying, no, you want to act on hinge because that (laughs) way 
they, they'll just <laughs> dismiss you as a loon and they won't think you have anything dangerous. And then cuts of the Homeland Security guy saying, no, that's exactly what draws the most attention. To <laughs> he gets taken into customs. He gets sat down. They look through probably this like reaming, teeming list of all the brands that obviously they are not allowed to smuggle back into the country. Turns out Pez is not one of them. And so yeah. they say, okay, I guess I can let you go. And because that one customs agent, it seems, decided to take, be the, the constitutionalist of the customs book and take mm -hmm. things by the letter of the law, then this man started an entire empire from it. And so to that point, yeah, it's, it wasn't about crime, more about competition, right? Mm -hmm. That the entire squeezing out of his operations by Pez at the end is purely because of what he's doing and the fact that they can't technically stop him. They can't say, you're robbing your, our product from us. Even when he was producing his own line, it was like separate while still within the same Pez factory. So it technically feels like a crime, but it's not, which maybe is the most fun crimes of them all. Yeah, maybe the crime is capitalism. Maybe the criminals are the, you know, is the president who squashed this man for no reason. He has I a product so. that people want. He has a product that people uh, trade and deal with. Yes, some mm -hmm. of them is from the US and some of it's from Europe. There's this lively collecting scene and mm -hmm. it seems like he scorned that. And to me, yeah. that, that's the crime, Mari. Yeah, I agree. And it's just like, it's funny. It's like, all you had to do is register your trademark at customs. If you register your trademark at customs, he cannot technically legally bring it into the country. He would have been stopped. TSA, they, they would have been confiscated. Y'all didn't do what they told us was the bare minimum of registering a trademark. So there is technically no illegality here because he still is selling licensed Pez product because he's going to the European distributors having the European Pez people make his orders for him and he imports them and that was the thing because Pez didn't Pez USA didn't register as the only importers of Pez then he can import them I think if he tried to make them himself on US soil that would be a like a different thing yeah but it's it's all about importation and he he just lucked up into the right thing making the right contacts at those European factories in order for them to slip him a few thousand <laughs> Pez dispensers. Several and trucks full. <laughs> yeah, several trucks full. And because he was getting the designs that Pez USA, that's another thing, these were designs that Pez USA did not want to sell in the U.S. They didn't mm -hmm. want to sell. So he was selling things that were limited. He, It's not even like he was selling the exact same thing that they were selling. So he made himself his own market. He made him himself a, his own niche market and it was it was such a, a fun ride to see it happen. But when it got closer to the end, I was like, oh, no, I think I don't think this is going to end. Yeah, well. The bomb's, the yeah. bomb's going to drop out. Clearly, yeah. considering that we, you know, began with them on this very nice, but clearly like uh, not the most uh, vivacious farm from a yeah. monetary perspective. He wasn't living on some sort of manner with yeah. you know, rolling hills behind him. You got to assume that it was going to be a rags to riches back, back to rags story. The, the rags are much more, I think, quality rags, considering how they talked about their previous housing situation, right? Wrapping mm -hmm. plastic around the doors and the water freezing when it hits the ground. 
again that's the other thing as well i just thought the cast of characters was so interesting so i really loved his wife uh his yes wife. kathy let's talk about kathy who honestly kind of felt like maybe it was the voice if i'm being honest kind of felt like the marge simpson to his homer simpson in that like yeah he has these wacky crazy schemes and she's like all right i guess i'll go along with it uh and <laughs> yeah. so and i i she was so deadpan so dry her going forward is to say like her being so confident in her relationship to say it was lust at first sight of like yeah, yeah we've been together the sect was great it still is this woman is <laughs> incredibly open but i would imagine again being married to steve glue you kind of just have to live your life with that openness of you never know what the day will bring to you, whether it's something he mm-hmm. does or something the Pez company does to you or a Netflix documentary crew knocking on the door of your bar and saying, I want you to go play with the horses for 45 minutes for B-roll. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought she was a fantastic character as well as like, I think a nice moral anchor point. We do talk to his son yes. and daughter as well, but I think she was one of the people that really helped contextualize things, always bring us back to like, Yep, that's who Steve was. Steve is a dreamer. Steve has these positives. Steve has these negatives, but you got to love him for it at the end of the day. He's a horse, right? You can <laughs> yes. lead him to water. You can't make him drink it. Yeah. So she she decides to say yes. She's sick of saying no to all those crazy ideas. She decides to say, yes, Murray, you're a wife. Uh, this, I mean, it struck it struck me as like a really loving relationship. I I like that she was like the supportive backbone for him. He's he gave her every chance that he got. He he said he did this all for her, you know. And and when she started struggling with her Parkinson's disease, he really came back and and really started helping her more. And they 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 say his son and everybody says like their love and their bond was undeniable. And it was just really good to see. It's just one of those those parts where it had nothing really to do with the other enterprise you know that he was doing but it was a moral anchor anchor point it was one of those things where every time he talked about her he would get choked up Mm. and just seeing them like kiss at sunrise as they look at their horses and make jokes was just it really was very very heartwarming and it's stuff like that that you love to see in these documentaries where you're you're presenting fully realized people and characters to us because Steve talks about how he went from Steve glue to like, he had to be the Pez out. Like he had to create that character for him, but the, Kathy wasn't with the Pez outlaw. She was with Steve, you know, and she could mm-hmm. be the person, that person for him. So Kathy was just a, a rock. I loved, I loved all of her interviews. Yeah. It, yes. I mean, it's almost like uh, the alternate happy ending to Breaking Bad, right? When it's like, well, did you, what did you do it for? I did it first, Tyler. I love you. I'm going to give up making drugs. We're sticking together now. That's what he does when he, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's coincidental in that, uh, you know, all this stuff was getting shut down in Europe. But once he finds out that, you know, uh, her Parkinson's has developed to a certain extent, he does drop everything in that moment to take mm-hmm. care of her. And that says everything to me. Again, perhaps what I'm used to in these true crime documentaries of the subjects not being the best husbands or fathers yeah. <laughs> or partners out there because of their own selfish narcissistic tendencies to have mm-hmm. like what seems like a genuinely good person in Steve Blue be like, no, screw this. My wife comes first. I got to be sure to take care of her. And something that still brings him to tears, even all these years later. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's going to say uh, one of the, the you know things that he's so happy about is that he married his therapist. And I know that that's something you can benefit from, you know, obviously not in a literal capacity, but I think 
having that person who truly does understand you, how you tick and not necessarily diagnose, but I think be able to help you get on a path to figuring things out was certainly part of my mental health journey. And so like, I really have to give it up to Kathy and, and all the, you know, the partners out there for not only having that, that composure and patience to put up with the fact that this man was taking so many jaunts to former territories of the Soviet Union to get his mm -hmm. semi-illegal Pez dispensers, but then also like, you know, still being able to take care of him when clearly she knows he was compensating for something at a time when that's all you really could do to compensate for things. She clearly was very supportive of him in so many ways. Yeah. We have the very interesting Gunther Leitner. He's the managing director of Pairs Europe. And for most of the documentary, he's uh, represented by a portrait and a reenactor in a rather marvelous plaid suit. According to Steve, uh, he was very enthusiastic. He does basically under the table deals where Steve, the first time they met, gave him 4,000 of your American dollars and it went straight into his pocket and mm -hmm. gave him, you know, three trucks worth of pears. And then fascinatingly, this is one of the, the coup de theatre of the documentary. We meet the actual Gunther Leitner who says he's heard of Steve, never mm -hmm. met him. Right. <laughs> deny, deny, deny. They're mm -hmm. far away from Egypt, but they're definitely channeling denial. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, and and also the marvelous Johan Patek, who Whoa. says, "If you if you want to call me something, call me a crazy collector." Uh, I loved his expression. Steve thought he could get it for an apple and an egg, which he did. He was buying them for seventeen cents and selling them for. Mm. Uh, several thousand dollars. Uh, he also says collecting is more or less a disease. Mari Johan crawling up into his attic, Yo, coming out Johan. with a gun. Uh, <laughs> what was Johan feel? Johan opened the documentary and closed the documentary, basically calling Steve a loser the whole time. Johan had these people shook. These these other pest collectors would not tell us what Johan did for a living. Yep. They wouldn't tell us what he sold them for. Like they were like, "Is this off the record?" They like the one lady was like, mm, "She was like, I I probably couldn't tell you what he does." I'm like, "What does this man do?" Yeah, this man is the Tommy Wiseau of it seems like the Pez community and that he's eclectic would be describing it mildly. He's a very strange man. He's incredibly secretive. There's this mm -hmm. extended sequence that they keep cutting between right where he calls up to his I guess it's attic. It's like a crawl space in one of his sheds where shed? he keeps all oh his Pez gosh. collections, which also seems well, terrible. Well, Mike, we don't know what's we in there. No, is Well, it, yeah, here's water. the thing. Right. As wholesome as we talk about this being, there's a very <laughs> real chance that this man has bodies in there. Right? <laughs> yeah. This guy is a merc. He's a murderer for hire. And like, this is where he keeps his kills. He's like, don't go in there. There's nothing in there. Don't just look. It's a Pez gun. Look at the Pez gun. Uh, so I, I mean, shoot you. I yeah, but when, when, yeah, exactly. He's wielding it a little too, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's not exactly showing he's a noob when it comes to that. What's most interesting <laughs> is is the fact that he is so disparaging of Steve Glue, so narcissistic to be oh, like, yeah. I mean, he essentially says like, oh, you're making a documentary about the wrong person, probably that implying that it should be brilliant. about himself, right? Mm -hmm. Which like, oh, dude, maybe if you gave us your life story and didn't <laughs> spend 
half an hour, I assume, inside like a three by three cubicle trying to sort through your unmentionables. Maybe we want to make a documentary about you. (laughs) Yeah. And they were very like tongue in cheek about what went down between him and Steve. It was like Steve came and said he wanted to buy some Pez. The deal fell through. He said the, the apple and the egg comment. Uh, they, I don't think that they parted on good terms. I think Tina tells us one of the other collectors who paid a thousand dollars for a, a Pez dispenser. Eleven thousand dollars. What did I say? A thousand on my bag. Yeah. Tina spent eleven thousand dollars on one Pez dispenser. On a Pez dispenser, something that people don't even use for the thing it should be used. For. <laughs> exactly. And she was like, "I don't even think Steve and Johan are even." friends and it's like uh, from what his he said no it doesn't feel like we don't think so (laughs) when it comes to these collectors i think that's something else that also really intrigued Mm -hmm. me is one one of the documentary types that i'm really interested in is again a lot of pop culture stuff uh i think you know it's like the toys that made the 80s or something like that as a netflix Mm -hmm. documentary series that i adore i love things that reference movies tv toys foods etc from specifically the 80s and the 90s back when sarah carradine was wielding a fake arm on a uh, australian sitcom uh, but <laughs> the, the, that's why it's always interesting to go to the collectors right mm-hmm. uh to go to like the fanatics because you think about like who would spend eleven thousand dollars on this but i can think of certain people in certain fandoms that like would spend thousands of dollars to make themselves like an authentic lightsaber for instance mm-hmm. Or to like recreate a, a a Starfleet uniform, perhaps with the 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 actual fabric proper that was used on the set. People invest a heavy amount of time and specifically money into these habits. I will not disagree with with Johan about him talking about it kind of being a disease to a certain point, and that there is an itch that I think collecting does scratch to a certain point. Are either one of you collectors? that was that was the main thing i was thinking about when i was watching this i said i don't have the attention span to do this like at most we collect i do i collect shot glasses and i collect uh knives so we have an array of different weaponry in our house (laughs) that is crime scene just like a slow way that after the fact we're like all right there was a lot of footprints leading to the mari ultimately those breadcrumbs just got bigger and bigger at all no we are we are sword and knife people so you know just stay away from us you know um (laughs) but but that's it and and to me and that's not even like and myself are like in a cupboard like it's not you know the 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 display of it all like in this show we saw so many collectors that like their whole rooms had like wall to ceiling each wall plus standing displays of just pets all pez dispensers and i just couldn't i could never do that like i barely yeah. i collected my pokemon cards i don't know where they're at i know i had a coin collection when i was a kid I don't know where that is. Like, uh, I, that I can, that can net you it. so much money nowadays. At least like I know, you know $20. I had the, the quarters, you know, the, the, oh, um, the state quarters. The state oh, yeah. Quarters. Yeah, my mom probably has them somewhere. I don't know. But that, like, you know, I'm just not it's good It's got to be worth like five, ten dollars or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if, if you got to 50 states, right, that's like uh, that, that's, that's close to like at least fifteen dollars. Yeah. yeah, just about. <laughs> and what about you, Mike? Do you collect? No, uh, the thing is, is that I, I find I have so many like multifaceted interests that I just dart between like a hummingbird with flowers. That I never have enough mm. time to necessarily feel like, yeah, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start 
collecting this. I guess maybe I'm am I like unintentionally collecting podcast appearances? I suppose so, <laughs> but that's not something I'm in. I'm not uh, voluntarily striving to do. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm Charlie Sure. Like Mari, I did Pokemon cards and I did Beanie Babies and all that, but never with the express sentiments of like I need to get everything, even though Pokemon's right. model has got to catch them all. Like it ended up working out conveniently where I was watching this and then an account that I follow on Twitter, which is uh, a Simpsons fan page has mm. like a room dedicated to reams and reams of Simpson memorabilia, which considering how long the Simpsons has been around says a lot. And so I am always so mystified by the people that are like, I've got to get this to add to my collection. Cause that's just, yeah, I don't know. I'm more of a collection of experiences person than a collection same. of commodities. Yeah. Same. Mm. I mean, we did, when we did, um, I love you, you hate me, which was the Barney documentary. Right. Uh, we saw a young man who, had absolutely everything but also I've heard collectors talk about I want to get the thing and once I have the thing I'm not interested in it anymore Mm -hmm. Mm. so this is where so I think there's probably different levels of collecting some people who when Steve Glue got because he was he collected cereal boxes before he became the Pez Outlaw and he still has them yeah and the way he was leafing through them and showing them and the way he touched them, you could tell that the objects themselves were the point of the collection. Yeah. Whereas other collectors are like, I just want that thing. And then once I have it, I'm not interested in it anymore. I mean, we're all Survivor fans and we know that there are Survivor fans who buy mm-hmm. memorabilia mm-hmm. and there's been a big debate about whether they should be allowed to buy the torches that actual contestants want. That's a whole mm-hmm. other story. But people collect things uh my mother who lived through the through a war and a depression and another war you could not throw away anything anything Mm. at all it was all very neat but uh it wasn't hoarding exactly but a piece of string were carefully wrapped uh envelopes were kept to write notes on the back of Uh, i still find it hard to throw away to recycle an envelope because you know it should be where you write your notes and that to me is a product of having lived through want and mm. wanting to have the thing. So so when I would go and see her, I mean, she's long dead now, but when I would go and see her in her home, the first thing I would do would be open the pantry and it would just be floor to ceiling. Say, so what? Who, how are you going to eat all these tins? Like mm. when is all of this? But this idea of needing the the things themselves to create a certain feeling. So I think there's that as well. There's kind of different, I suppose, different types of collectors. Our peers collectors want the objects, I think. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I was really like looking at this. Like I wanted to kind of see more of the Pez dispensers because all of the ones are like the bubble, the bubble man. This one was highly sought after. I was like, I don't get it. Like, I just don't. <laughs> the ugliest thing you've ever seen. But that's the point, right? Is that it's, it. it's, the, it's the rarity though. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's the plane that's printed upside down on the stamps. It's because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. it's this rare thing that they made. However many of them. And then. This yeah. guy looked at it as like, that's the ugliest effing thing I've ever seen. Do not make any more of that. In fact, I will burn down this factory right now just <laughs> to get rid of the evidence. The fact that it existed, I think, just made it the most rare thing of all. And then, of course, the irony of all ironies, right? Them saying, well, they like it. So I guess we need to now flood the market by now making yeah. our own line of bubble men. So now these just monstrosities of plastic are now existing out there cyclically because they were so bad that then they became rare that then Pez wanted to make them common to make them less valuable. So now the the thing that wasn't meant to be out on the market is now very much out on the market. The highest selling Pez dispenser, I think they said ever. <laughs> yeah, this this idea that this big corporation, they're not making they're not upping their profits by squashing these collectors. They're not changing their bottom line by affecting the collector's market, but they are by their actions affecting the collectors. Yeah. uh, Like seriously. And this to that to me is the crime. It makes no sense to me. It's like, why would you actively try to like crush the fans of the thing that you make? Like, they're the they're the people who are getting the word out and spreading the like oh you got to get into pez you know they're the ones who are are elevating your product to a point where it's like you have to have these and your main goal is to make them look foolish or stupid or you know it it just doesn't make sense to me like corporations are just weird to me like I just don't understand it and um we'll talk about I'll talk about it in my recommendations but we saw this with Beanie Babies as well it's like they hated the the collectors when the collectors were the ones that yep. got the word out about if you buy Beanie Babies they can be they can be worth more like that's the whole thing right whenever we hear something about collecting it it's like you want to collect it but also it's because one day it'll be worth something but you then you you have they get the the word out they say one day it'll be worth something it makes everybody want it and then you're like haha flood the market now it's worth nothing it's like it just doesn't make sense to me yeah it's interesting to see corporations kind of unconsciously try to squash something down while pushing away something that arguably makes it the most popular. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit apples and oranges, but if we're going to talk big brother for a second, I think the way that the show uh, and the people behind it sometimes like react to the virulent, very energetic, very Mm -hmm. eager and very invested big brother community. Sometimes they like to approach things very months at an arm's length, from that when really they have kind of produced their own phenomenon of in creating a show where the format involves 24 seven 
watching of contestants, they gain so many arguably unhealthy attachments to these players that it allows them to be maybe some of the most invested I've seen a fan base ever be. And rather than sort of capitalize on that or acknowledge how intense that can be, instead, sometimes they, they treat it as a very different product that instead pushes those people away when yep. honestly, those are the people that are coming back year after exactly. year now point. now what's interesting is we get gunther which is fantastic like you said sarah fantastic mid movie reveal <laughs> so is is the president dead like i was very surprised we did not that we had to go through middleman bud and that we bud. got not mm-hmm. a talking word from this man I think that uh, he may have, but I mean, there's no note. You often get a note. You know, the president was uh, asked if he would like to uh, take part, but uh, refused. I assumed simply that he, the last thing he wants to talk about is um, Steve Glue, particularly as Steve is now having a resurgence of of popularity. Mm -hmm. That was exactly my thought. I think he didn't want to. give Steve any uh, like notoriety off of him being there and Bud oh my gosh Bud Bud. sitting there so smirky and snarky and (laughs) James is like does he does he not realize he's the villain I was like I don't know (laughs) I can assure you that Steve Glue was not in any way responsible for the closing of the Pez factories in Europe Mm -hmm. (laughs) no matter what Steve Glue might think but come on not to be lookist but he looks like the model for the bubble boy there you go just those those round cheeks yeah but then he he goes on to he does admit at one point he does slip up and he's like yeah we may have hired somebody to follow steve throughout europe uh just to Mm -hmm. see what he was up to i don't know i could see on the one hand the points that both of you are making of like i'm not going to give him the service of you know allowing my words to be twisted at the Mm -hmm. same time then you're completely in my opinion seeding the stage to steve to tell the story i feel like but is trying to represent the corporate side of things. But I feel like there is so much character slander of this man over the course of these hour and 25 minutes that like, I don't know. I I have a feeling that if he ended up watching it, he'd be like, he would regret not going on to it considering how much shit was talked about how arrogant and pompous and fearful and furious he was throughout the entire thing by a little old Steve glue. That reenactor mm-hmm. didn't hold back. Right, exactly. I mean, he was, they, he played up that kind of like uh, 80s villain, like mm-hmm. corporate villain. It was so good. It it really did make it feel very um, like a, 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 a TV movie. So uh, just before we finish on this, uh, Pez, when was the last time you ate a Pez? <laughs> Uh, that my first time was my last time, probably yeah. when I was like, I don't know, five or six years old. Because yeah, the usually they see it. Uh, the the dispensers usually came in packages with a couple of packs of Pez. I mean, I'm not a fan of like chalky candy <laughs> in general. This reminds uh, me too much of you know Alka Seltzer. Remind yeah. makes me feel like I should be. Uh, I want to eat candy to cause a tummy ache, not to prevent one. And so <laughs> I re- I remember trying them, and they just had like no flavor, and they mm-hmm. were really odd to bite into. I just abhorred mm. the taste of them. They probably tasted 
like the way that man Bud comes across. You know, like he is a human Pez, just like bland, <laughs> tough to bite into, doesn't leave a good taste in your mouth at the end of the day. He yep. represents Pez in so many ways. <laughs> yes, same. I, I, I think I may have nibbled a Pez once and I was like, ew, what is this? Like, same. I thought it was medicine. I was like, what is this? Like, I don't get Pez. I don't get it. I'm sitting here <laughs> looking at some of like, I'm looking at all the most expensive Pez dispenser. I'm like looking through just images of it. And I'm like, I don't get it. The only one that I, that I think I, I saw that evoked any kind of like, like oh I, that's kind of cool was the skull like when when uh mm-hmm. steve made the inverted color skull like the black skull with the yellow eyes and the red cape i was like okay that does look kind of cool like that was the only one i just do not get this at all how about you sarah i, I mean that's, like, is that I've, your time yeah I've, ne- I've never had a pez i was aware of them obviously the seinfeld pears episode is one yep. that it just lives lives on that was a woodstock Pears, I think, was it? I think, or um, the Tweety Bird one. Oh, maybe it was a Tweety Bird. That that is the epitome of pears for me. I've never tasted mm-hmm. one, but I it I imagined that it tasted exactly how you described it, uh, Mike. Some sort of uh, that when you got those kind of sweets as a child, you, you would think a terrible trick had been played on you, and you would you would <laughs> never trust the adult ever again for their betrayal. Uh, of you yeah that's the yes. worst joke to play on somebody who's recovering from covid is like oh no you didn't get your taste back just kidding i gave you a pez there's no time <laughs> <You're fine. laughs> exactly. so mike how many magnifying glasses uh, out of five are you going to rate the pez outlaw allow me to be as hyperbolic as steve glue i'll give it the full five why the Woo! hell not I had, a, I had a great time with this it was The subject matter was lighthearted enough for me to not feel like I had to dwell on it too much after the fact. The subject Mm -hmm. itself was lighthearted. Steve Glue, I thought, was like very self-deprecating, but jolly about it as well. He really did seem does seem like this guy that walks to the beat of his own drum, but he is more than happy to keep going with that music for the rest of his life. And Mm -hmm. someone who is like also so, I don't know, self-satisfied with himself as well like i loved his ruminations at the end of the movie about how everyone wants to be remembered in life they want to make their mark and they want to get it right at least once but then there's a little bit of an edge to him right where he follows it up being like this guy will always be part of my story that's what he'll be remembered by and so i love how complicated Mm -hmm. of of a character he is that there is some inherent narcissism in there of him partially doing this stuff yes to give himself a better life ultimately from where he was but also because he really enjoy doing it and it lifted him out of these doldrums that he felt he was currently living in so between the main character the kind of supporting cast around him and their own odd quirks they're in and like the story proper while the ending was not obviously and they lived happily ever after it sort of was in that they did yes end up two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt essentially getting squashed out by pez doing the exact same things they did but at the same time it feels like this man learned how to become happy with himself by engaging in an activity that he loved that was wild as all get out. But at the same time, I think taught him a lot about himself, which is an odd way to end a true crime documentary. (laughs) But just that being one of the many elements of uniqueness in there made it a really enjoyable watch for me. So I got to give it five stars. Well, great. Uh, Mari, what about you? How many magnifying glasses for you? 
Yeah, I I agree. Like I have to give it five. Like I'm over here trying to think of reasons not to give it five, and I can't think of any reasons. So I just I have to give it a five. Like <laughs> it it truly is one of those experiences where like nobody is hurt. <laughs> the subject matter, the the subject, he's telling his own story. I feel like we're getting so much information thrown at us in a very entertaining way on a subject I knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. So, so I I really did enjoy it. And yeah, it's like not a happily ever after just because like they essentially destroyed him financially. But I do love that he's saying like what he has is his story, like Mike said. And I love that this actually this documentary itself is like getting back <laughs> to, you know, like it's the, just him making this documentary and having his story intertwined with Pez, like Mike said, is also like we're supporting him getting back to it. So I, I loved it. I, I truly did. I'm it shut me up. I, I'm glad we watched it. <laughs> Yes, you, I'm, uh, well, I'm exactly the same five. I can't Woo! see a single thing wrong with mm-hmm. it. This is our first triple five of, yeah. out of 42 episodes. Whoa! Yeah. I just making think history. It, making yep. history. I think the as as far as the film itself and how it's made, it's so well made. The yeah. reenactments, normally anathema to us, like perfection, the, as you say, Mari, the intercuts of, of the talking heads, one saying one and one immediately contradicting mm-hmm. them. The people that they chose to speak to from Bud to Gunther to, to Tina, uh, all the way to Mike and Kathy, who are our centre of our uh, of the film, were just wonderful. The story made me think about lots of things like pursuing um, pursuing sort of madness and pursuing craziness, and yet you can you can go to great heights with it. Tilting it at windmills, I suppose you would say. And here's a relationship that uh, I mean, some relationships are teams. This is a different relationship of what you would say partners. She was saying yes, and that was her support of him while she went on with her horse therapy business, which I thought was such a brilliant business. Mm-hmm. And the pairs paid for that. The pairs paid for her to train and bought the horses she could use for horse therapy. So I just think I cannot find a single thing uh, wrong with it. So it is a five from me as well. So to our recommendations, Mike, what have you been listening to, reading and watching that you'd like to recommend? Oh, I mean, so, so many things. What I've been doing is I've been using January, which is I mean, I'm going to say like, oh, it's rare downtime, but I will get into my plugs later on, which still is like shows that, you know, uh, the shallowest puddle for me is still like three feet deep in terms of content. Uh, But I have been using this opportunity to catch up on things that I either was watching in the moment or should have. You know, I've been watching Severance for the first time. But the one thing I will recommend is I'm going to make it thematic to this podcast. And I'm sure I'm not, again, the first person to recommend this. But actually, last night, I just finished season two of Only Murders in the Building, which I I adore uh, because I think, again, while the subject matter itself is obviously not dealing in territory that I love, it's done in a way that I think pokes a lot of fun of this stuff that that the two of you love to, to, you know, get into. Obviously, we all love to get into almost 10 years ago as well. Them sort of making fun of it, but doing it in their Steve Martin, Martin Short, just like really goofy way but they also say the f word a lot which i just like never expected 
from Steve mm-hmm. Martin and Martin Short considering like that guy usually has an arrow through his head while playing a banjo and now he's saying the F word a bunch of times. It's interesting <laughs> to watch them go edgy. I mean, not to say that the show can sometimes not, you know, uh, be serious and go into like some very intense territory. Nathan Lane is one of the scariest people on the show. Nathan Lane is one of the scariest people on the show. But I do think it's well done. It's funny. The characters are quirky. And there are like surprising twists and turns throughout. That whole murder mystery aspect is something that I really enjoy, whether it's, you know, more recent odes like Your Knives Out or, you know, going all the Mm -hmm. way back to the adventures of Hercule Poirot and all of his Mm -hmm. depictions therein, both past and modern. That's what I've always loved about the crime solving aspect of the genre in and of itself. So only murders definitely recommend it. Uh, plus there are some big old gets that they just announced for season three as well. If you want to watch yes. Meryl Streep tear up television for the first time mm-hmm. since big little lies season two, and hopefully do a better job overall in quality than big little lies season two, feel free to watch only murders in the building two seasons on Hulu that are 10 episodes a piece. They're only half hour as well, which makes it, really nice to watch not that i disparage hour-long shows whatsoever but it can feel a lot less overwhelming to watch 20 episodes that are 30 minutes long as ones as opposed to ones that are one hour long so yeah that's what i'm I'm recommending especially i'm assuming for listeners of this podcast i think especially ones that enjoy this right taking a look at something that still had emotional stakes that took on a more lighter comical tone that really is only murders to a t and only murders in the building, or omit B, as I like to call it, yes. uh, is has a, a podcaster in it. Yes, exactly. That's the entire uh, concept of it is that they create their own true kind podcast. So that's also very fun, especially in the early days. They kind of like shirk the podcast idea in season two, just because they're yes. going in other directions. But initially, when they're going through the growing pains of creating, especially a narrative podcast, which I know the three of us are not used to, but certainly mm-hmm. engage in, uh, I think that it, it's a very fun meta leo pointing at the screen thing mm-hmm. as well as people of our ilk <laughs> wonderful mari what have you got to recommend today like i hinted at uh beanie mania on hbo mm. max if you want something basically just exactly like this <laughs> <laughs> check out beanie mania on hbo max it's a documentary that came out i think it came out like two years ago around there something like that and it's about the Beanie Baby tr- uh, trend and craze. And it talks to like some of the women who made Beanie Babies like big and the, the housewife, like the inner circle of housewives and and Beanie collectors. And then it goes into like people stealing people's Beanie Baby collections. It's a wild ride, man. It is a very wild ride. Ty, the, the creator of Beanie Babies, him like suing small collectors. It Ooh. just, it truly is. I, I was like, so this is everything. Corporate corporations are just, they're just crap everywhere. Like um, th- this woman, she was, uh, I think her name was Mary Jo. She had her own Beanie Baby magazine where she would, in her magazine, she would talk about the latest Beanie Babies that came out. She'd have all these, you know, and these magazines would fly off the shelf and they would, she would sell them, sell them at trade shows and it would get the word out. People would, would collect the magazines and then when they would collect their Beanie Babies, they would mark it off in the magazine, knowing like it would help people collect. And it, it single-handedly was one of the things that got the word out about Beanie Babies being so big and Ty Suter because he said she was infringing on his, on his right so it's a very interesting yeah it's it's a very very interesting story it's just like pez outlaw here 
a lot of the people who are they're talking direct to to camera about it. So um, that's on HBO Max here in the States if you want to check that out. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I would also say I, I would imagine that like they have to mention NFTs. Right. Because like that's definitely <laughs> something that a lot of people have been talking about in the past couple of years of how when people try to describe NFTs, they kind of compare it to the Beanie Baby craze. Really? I haven't I have not heard that, actually. Oh, yeah. Cause it, cause this idea, right, of like collecting it therein tries to assume its worth. But then, of course, when everyone collectively just decides to stop believing that they have worth, then the whole bottom falls out. Exactly. And just crash. Yep. Very, very true. What about you, Sarah? Well, today I'm going to take a swerve. Uh, I'm going to recommend a podcast. It's called <laughs> If Books Could Kill, um, which Ooh. is a great name, and it's a terrific podcast. Uh, Michael Hobbs is a journalist, and uh, you may know him from Maintenance Phase podcast, uh, so drive-by recommendation for Maintenance Phase there. He's teamed up with Peter Shamshiri, who's a lawyer and podcaster, and they discuss, this is what they say, the airport bestsellers that captured our hearts and ruined our minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, so far they've covered Freakonomics, The Game, and The Secret. So they take a very forensic look at the methods behind the statements made in these books the effect uh, that they had, and their thesis is basically the bad effect that uh, yeah. these these books have. Books have. I was going to wow. say, because it's so interesting, you know, Freakonomics was something I remember reading in AP Economics back in like Same. 2007. Same. And I feel, like, I feel like nowadays, 15 years later, people are like, those are bad takes, right? I mean, <laughs> there is some uh, rather odd stuff there's an entire <laughs> chapter about like a guy going inside the Ku Klux Klan and how it ends up being a pyramid scheme but they just sort of shrug off you know the values that the KKK espouses uh so clearly there were some things that that were meant for a reckoning but I have also heard that yeah in general like the the things they are going after do not necessarily sail in many ways. <laughs> yes. So uh, they're, they're quite short episodes and I've been really enjoying them very much. And, you know, who makes you think about what we read? I mean, we talk about reading stuff on the internet and because of them and because of maintenance phase with the wonderful Aubrey Gordon, it's, it is making me think when I read something, to go, well, what's behind it? What are the assumptions here uh, that that we're saying, oh, we all we all understand this, so I'm going to make this point. And then actually you go back to say, well, do we all understand it and who does it benefit and who does it not benefit? So it's not heavy, but it's fascinating, so I recommend that. So at Crime Scene, we're eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's scene, S-E-E-N, or email us at crimescenerhap at gmail.com. We're also on TikTok at crime.scene, that's at crime.scen, <laughs> and on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Scene Podcast. So, Mike, what do you have going on and where can the people find you? Oh, Lord, you're ready to dive into the not so shallow puddle. All right. Yes, uh, let's, let's get this. Let's pull, go. Pull off the bandaid. Uh, well, I'll start with the scripted stuff because that's probably the most pertinent at the moment, considering that a lot of reality TV shows that I typically cover are in recess right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so scripted content, The Last of Us. Yes, <gasps> I may not want to. So exciting. Dirty. 
yeah, dirty, violent, bloody stuff in my documentaries. But man, do I love it in my fictional television <laughs> series. And so I am talking about it with The Last of Us, HBO's new prestige Sunday night show adaptation of the video game of the same name from 10 years ago, starring Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. Just had his first episode premiere. Second episode is coming up. Actually, at the time this is airing, it will have already dropped. And so mm-hmm. will my coverage of it with Grace Leader. Grace Leader and I are the first of us talking about The Last of Us in your mm-hmm. ears. We are releasing the podcast literally as soon as the episode drops, recapping the episode, giving our thoughts. So far, again, we're recording this before episode two airs, but I thought episode one was pretty damn great. And so I'm really excited to check out more of that. I'm doing The Legend of Vox Machina, which is an animated adaptation of Critical Role, which is a hit Dungeons and Dragons uh, series by a bunch of nerdy ass voice actors from uh, the the Critical Role group. Uh, It's a very fun, surprisingly serious uh, fantasy animated series that is very fun. I'm covering that with DM Philly, a fantastic dungeon master in and of his own right. Josh Wiggler and I are talking heroes as well. Surely there's going to be some other stuff coming up in February and March, too. And then over on the reality TV side of things, there is one show right now on CBS, Tough as Nails, which is testing the metal of the American spirit. Uh, Steve Glue was a machinist, right? In a factory. Probably a contestant on Tough as Nails has some factory experience, at least. It's testing those blue-collar workers, showcasing their talents and giving them the ability to win some life-changing amounts of cash, covering that with Rob and Jessica Lee's. But Before we know it, our heads hit the pillow. It ends up becoming February, and the Survivor season is upon us. When the Survivor 44 cast drops, I will be able to get to do my usual drop of interviews as well with the contestants. So whenever that happens, uh, whenever the Amazing Race cast release as well, that's when the motors will start humming again. I'm sure many other random podcast appearances including on another podcast here on rhap that is out at this moment uh, my pod friends interview with matt scott should be out right now if people are for some reason inclined to hear more of my voice after this feel free to check that out if you don't want to hear my voice and just check out what my thumbs are producing at a my <laughs> type on twitter and all social <laughs> media platforms thank you for having me on these are not waters that i typically wade into but it helps that the waters are chummed with sugar and candy. Uh, I was attracted to it like a child to a gingerbread house, and I was not tricked by any witch here. I, I feasted on the delicious innards inside, and I'm very happy to have come on here and talk about a very enjoyable Netflix documentary. Ugh, innards. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's not the way to describe the inside of a house, right? The innards of it. Mm-hmm. Mari, where can the people find you, and what have you got going on? Well, of course, uh, every week you can find me and Matt Scott over on the Wrestling Rehab Up podcast. This week we had an amazing guest. And uh, if you if you stick around, we did a very, very fun game. So please go check it out. Go subscribe. Go to robhasawebsite.com slash wrestling feed. Um, you can also watch us on YouTube. Go to the Rob Has a Podcast YouTube page and look up Wrestling Rehab Up. And so... Uh, that's it. Uh, of course, you can find me here with Sarah every True Crime Tuesday. But if you want to know what I'm doing, I will be popping up on random stuff. I'm sure you can follow me on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much. Uh, that's two like the number two. Follow me on Twitter and I'll post everything that I'm doing over there. Sarah, how about you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. If you've caught up with the Traders US, you can hear me and see me on the Season Overview panel here on RHAP. We had a lot of fun talking about it all. 
And from next week, I start my coverage of Taskmaster Australia with Australian Ninja Warrior Sean Bryan over on Silent Podcast. So check us out there. Uh, If you want help with links to things, you know, there might be a backdoor of a factory that you can come to. Uh, (laughs) Now, that's a good question. There's a documentary made by people sharing sites that are housing international reality shows. Is that a crime or is that more gray market? It's gray market. In order to to watch US things, I fly to America once a week to watch them all. So you too Mm -hmm. can fly to Australia and watch things. I'll also be covering Australian Survivor for Inside Survivor. So that's a little bit of writing I shall be doing there. Nice. Next time on Crime Scene, we're covering Web of Death, not for Mike Bloom, on Hulu, (laughs) the second of their January true crime series from ABC News Studios. We covered the first series, Death in the Dorms, in episode 40. We'll have returning guest Grace Leader with us. Second shout out to Grace in this episode. Yeah. Uh, we rated the previous one highly, so it should be a goodie. Uh, watch it. It's available from now and send us your comments and questions. Thanks to Mike Bloom for joining us. Will from America for the theme music, Tricky Rice for the graphics, and Chelsea Lesser and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time, case, case closed. closed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.